I'm Paul Wiegraf, Director of the Delaware Division of the Arts and your host for today. Joining me today uh, remotely is Dr. Isai Jess Munoz, Associate Professor of Voice and Opera from the University of Delaware. Welcome, Jess. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to our, our conversation today. We're talking off air about your background in opera and my background in musical theater. And there's uh, certainly a lot of connections there. So uh, hopefully we can get into some of that. But first, let's hear a little about, bit about you, your, your background, what got you involved in voice and opera, and then ultimately what led you to Delaware? Well, uh, I grew up in, in uh, a preacher's house. Both my parents were ministers. And so I had always sung uh, at my church. And then when I was 10 years old, when I was in the fifth grade, uh, the local opera company sent some young artists to my elementary school and they did a children's opera there. And I had never heard such ethereal singing like that in my life. Uh, and so to this day, I'm an advocate and a believer in opera outreach uh, because of that experience that I got to have. And uh, I just uh, recall that after seeing that children's opera at my school, I ran home that day and I told my mom, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. And she said, well, what's that? And I said, I want to be an opera singer. So you can just imagine the look on my mom's face. There, there wasn't anyone in my household who had been trained classically in music. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the church that I attended was, was a Puerto Rican gospel church. So uh, it, it was a very much a different style of music but I was a very tenacious child. And so she ended up calling the, the opera company and asked them if there was something that a little boy like me could do with them. And uh, I think it was a moment of divine intervention because they said, well, actually there is. In two weeks, we're gonna be having auditions for our children's opera chorus. So why doesn't he come in and audition for us? And so I went in with a boom box in hand I didn't even know what sheet music was. Uh, there were over a hundred kids there with sheet music, uh, but I guess they heard something in my voice and uh, they ended up offering me a scholarship to study in their opera youth program. Uh, and three months later, I was in my first opera, which was uh, Tosca, Puccini's Tosca, and the Scarpia, for those of you who know uh, the, the plot of that opera, the Scarpia was Cheryl Milnes. Oh, wow. So that was an absolutely incredible experience. And, and then I just stayed in that apprentice program uh, all the way through middle school and high school. And it was a wonderful preparatory place that prepared me for uh, conservatories. And I went on to do my undergrad at the Cincinnati Conservatory and then my master's at Manhattan School of Music. And then just stayed in New York and uh, my career started kicking off. I, I did comedic roles uh, at at City Opera and other companies, uh, both in the States and abroad. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, that's pretty much how things began for me. Well, the moral of that story is never underestimate the power of a one-time exposure to high quality arts and the importance of supportive parents. So I, that, that, that's, uh, that's fascinating, Fred. I, I just love that story. So um, you're, your career has been quite expansive in both the performing side of things, as well as the teaching side of things. 
What brought you specifically to Delaware? Well, I, I arrived to Delaware in fall of 2016. My first academic appointment uh, after attaining my doctorate in New York was at Indiana Wesleyan University, just north of Indianapolis. It was a wonderful institution, extremely collegial. I had the opportunity there to, um, to, to really learn just the ropes of, of academia. And it was primarily a teaching institution, but I always had strong uh, interest in furthering my research a bit more. And so when I received the in invitation to join the faculty uh, at, the, at the University of Delaware, fabulous R1 institution, I, I, I accepted and it's been a joy to be here. Uh, and they've been extremely supportive of the work that I've been doing. And uh, I had the opera workshop ensemble there, uh, which really serves as a reflective think tank, which offers students an array of tools uh, designed uh, and selected for the actor singer. Uh, so pretty much performers who are faced with the task of singing and acting simultaneously. And so we pretty much train students to effectively absorb a libretto, a musical score. Uh, we walk them through how to develop a character by building um, said material. And we use all different kinds of methods. We use historic, uh, historically significant methods, um, for those of you who are familiar with old acting methods, but we also utilize uh, physical theater methods where physical movement becomes a, a primary method of storytelling. Uh, so we've designed a, a curriculum that, that welcomes students to engage with postmodern physical theater and devising tools as well. Uh, for those of you who are theater buffs, you may know the work of Anne Bogart and her viewpoints training. It's just really interesting to see how the field of opera is expanding. And for those of you who are fans of of Opera Delaware and uh, Opera Philadelphia and who have experienced uh, contemporary settings of, of, uh, of operatic material and new opera. Uh, really, uh, the field of opera, it's, it's basically becoming a nameplate for a host of subgenres, right? We have rock opera, we have, and especially now, um, uh, we're learning so much because of COVID. And, and virtual opera, of course, is just expanding more than ever in the forms of it. Uh, so it's really important that we provide our students with the skill sets that they need for opera in the 21st century. Now, I, I know I have uh, in the past spoken with uh, Brendan Cook with Opera Delaware, and we've, we've talked about opera as perhaps one of the most integrated art forms because it integrates music, theater, the visual arts, and often dance. C could you speak to that and how, I mean, you've talked a lot here about how opera is, is evolving. What, ha what have been the catalysts? Has, has that evolution come out of need or uh, an influence of other art forms or just changes in society? Yeah, I think all of the above. I think it has it 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 has burgeoned because of need, uh, but I think that also millennials are asking for something different these days. Um, they're they're very uh, conscientious when it comes to uh, just socially politically charged subjects and 
and, and just uh, social well-being and health and uh, artists as citizens. So not only are audiences asking for something different, but the students uh, who study opera are also seeking to be able to expand the form and to speak into it uh, through those um, through those social malaises that they see happening, right? How can they uh, be responsive to those kinds of, of, of things? Uh, I, I actually serve as the vice president for conferences at the National Opera Association, uh, which uh, basically its, its mission is to promote a greater appreciation of opera and music theater. And uh, we hold an annual conference along with a growing series of regional events. And this past year, uh, our conference had to pivot to virtual and to virtual platform. And it was really a, a riveting uh, experience, um, which I think speaks directly to, to what you asked, you know, in terms of uh, why is it changing? How is it changing at the sessions this year? Uh, and, and what people were, were, uh, were bringing to, to discuss was really powerful. Um, uh, we had a, a session called Opera's Problem with the Fat Lady, which was all about promoting body size and diversity on stage and in the classroom. Uh, of course, we had sessions uh, in response to COVID-19 and how on earth can we uh, be teaching opera to students. Uh, but then we had things like staging sexual violence um, through trauma-informed in, pe pedagogy, uh, where we can create safe spaces, um, you know, and things like Title IX uh, and how we work inside of the rehearsal space. That's also uh, changing uh, the way in which opera functions and works. So there's a big call for diversity, for equality, uh, and, and how that's reflected both in who's cast in opera, uh, but also who's filling the seats inside of our theaters. Uh, so these are things that, that really matter more than ever to the general public, but also to uh, the performers. Well, I, I wanna turn to uh, your performing career, but let me first remind our listeners that you are tuned into Delaware State of the Arts here on News Radio 1450 WILM and 1410 WDOV. Joining me today is Dr. Isai Jess Munoz, Associate Professor of Voice and Opera at the University of Delaware. Uh, Jess, your performing career, uh, let's go back a little bit because it's quite, a, quite illustrious. You, you referenced earlier that it's international in scope. Uh, you have a Grammy-nominated album uh, from about 10, 11 years ago but you have a number of other recordings since, and you have a new recording that is just out uh, today as we're recording. Uh, talk a little bit about your performing career, how, where that took you, uh, what, what some of the highlights of your experiences have been, and then we'll take a look at your new, uh, your new uh, recording. Well, thanks. I, I was really fortunate in that I got to do my graduate studies and then my doctoral studies uh, in New York. And uh, that was an intentional choice on my part uh, because I was a little bit of a scaredy cat uh, I, when I was really young. And I just felt like, well, if I want to launch a career, it might be a good idea for me to uh, study in New York so that under the canopy of a protective environment, I could get to know uh, a lay of the land. And so 
uh, one of the cool things about being a student at the Manhattan School of Music was that uh, they would bring in professional stage directors mm -hmm. to stage direct the productions there. And actually the, the first professional job that I got as a principal artist uh, was at the Bard Music Festival. And the person who hired me there was someone who had stage directed me at Manhattan School of Music. And so that's how things kind of took off. And early on, one of my teachers identified me as a spiel tenor, uh, a comedic tenor, mostly because of my height uh, and my temperament, my acting skills. And that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to be able to do a lot of those comedic roles regionally and internationally. Uh, you know, you don't have the pressures of being the leading, the leading tenor who has to be there front and center uh, all the time. I got to be backstage and, and, and chill a lot and read a lot of books and reflect on, on the craft of singing. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I got to have uh, an incredible time in, in New York, of course, singing at City Opera and at Lincoln Center. That's always been a joy. Uh, but I, I got to do a lot of work with the Center for Contemporary Opera as well in New York. Uh, one of uh, my great passions is uh, is really diving into new works and workshopping new material with, with new composers. Uh, so I had the privilege of working with uh, Francis Thorne and J.D. McClatchy, who's now passed. Uh, but uh, they did an opera a uh, number of years back, uh, Mario and the Magician, which also was recorded on, on Albany Records and uh, working with Thomas Passatieri on his production of The Seagull. So really getting to work with living composers has always been a thrill for me. James Dashow, of course, uh, who wrote an opera called Arch Archimedes. He's one of the leaders in electronic opera as well. Um, and, and of course, uh, work in Baroque opera has also been a great joy for me. Uh, and uh, so, so, yeah, those are just some of the highlights, uh, but, but really being there um, with, with composers, living composers, seeing how their mind works. And that's also been one of the great joys for me at the National Opera Association, because uh, one, of, one of the things that we do is, is work with new composers to disseminate their material in the collegiate setting. So um, just this past year, I was, uh, or just for this past conference, we honored the, the life and legacy of uh, composer Alice Parker, mm -hmm. who's a, a strong choral uh, composer. And many people don't know that she's um, composed for operas. And so I got to work hand in hand with her uh, in, in disseminating her material. And uh, Murray Boren, who's uh, one of uh, the great living Mormon composers. Th these things happened through an initiative that we have at the National Opera Association called the Sacred in Opera Initiative that uh, studies the interplay between the ideologies of world religions and opera. So that's been a real interesting initiative for me to, uh, to focus on and also because because I'm a preacher's kid, but then went on to sing in a lot of different denominations, uh, that, that was definitely an initiative that caught my interest early on and that I've been a, a big part of for, for a long time now. You mentioned Alice Parker. Am I right that Scott Joplin wrote an opera? He did, yes. Uh, Trimonisha. Right, Trimonisha, that was it. I, I couldn't think of the name, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, many of our famous American composers, you don't think about it, but, you know, there, there they are. Well, let, let's turn to your uh, recording that was just released. 
uh, Visca L'Amour, Catalan art songs of the 20th and 21st centuries. Tell us about its, its origins, what, uh, how you conceived of this, and what it took to put it together. Sure. Well, I first want to start off by saying that it's a thrill to collaborate with a great pianist uh, who also happens to be my wife <laughs> and also a, a faculty member at the University of Delaware, Dr. Oksana Glauchko, who, um, who uh, appears on this recording uh, with me. And as you said, the recording is focused on Catalan art song of the 20th and 21st century. Uh, Catalonia is the autonomous uh, region in Spain, which includes Barcelona, whose language was censored in the 20th century by the repressive effects of the Spanish Civil War and the Franco dictatorship. Uh, and it's really terrible what happened to their uh, publishing houses during that time that were all uh, but decimated uh, through that period in history. But behind closed doors, uh, the music lived on. Uh, and for decades, native composers continued to set their beautiful language, Catalan, uh, to music. And in the last 30 years, local publishers have finally been able to salvage and gather these beautiful melodies. And so once tucked away and enshrouded, uh, they're now being published and shared with the world. And so it's our joy to just uh, be able to, um, to disseminate uh, Catalonia's own distinctive uh, musical voice and, and heritage, which uh, actually uh, some people may not realize this, but it's, it's strongly influenced by its exchange of ideas on impressionism and neoclassicism uh, with, with France. So we're so excited to illuminate this genre, its history, its style, uh, so that it can continue to be sung and celebrated. And you had asked how I, I, I came to become acquainted with this repertoire. Uh, when I was doing my doctoral studies at Stony Brook University, I, I had actually decided that I, I wanted to research Iberian and Latin American art song, uh, because interestingly, though I'm a, a Hispanic, a Latinx American, I had never had the opportunity to delve into research in relation to music of my own heritage uh, while pursuing my studies in classical music. All of it was focused on Central European song literature, but not Spanish literature. Yeah, uh, you German. think Italian and Russian and yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah, right. German and French and all German that. And French, right. So I had decided that I wanted to focus on Iberian and Latin American art song. People would ask me all the time, hey, what do you sing in Spanish? And I didn't have a, a, a whole lot of repertoire mm -hmm. at that point. So I received a grant to, uh, to go to Spain uh, but the last thing that I expected was to become acquainted with uh, Catalan arts. Yeah. And upon hearing it, I just fell in love with it. And I just thought, oh my God, there's a treasure trove of material here to discover. And I had uh, rarely heard of it in the United States. Um, Victoria de Los Angeles and Montserrat Caballé, Jose Carreras, of course, mm -hmm. they're all native uh, Catalonians. And yeah. so they had recorded some of it. I had heard, I, I had heard them sing some of it. Um, but it really wasn't until I immersed myself in the culture in Barcelona for a few months that I realized that I, that I, that I had to um, look into it further. And I was just hooked from that point forward. So we've been programming this repertoire in our own recitals since 2010. Okay. 
So the entire uh, recording is you and your wife. Are any of these songs uh, related as uh, part of a song cycle or are they all independent songs? Well, it, it, it's great that you asked that. Actually, the whole album focuses on song cycles, on micro okay. song cycles. So uh, it's, it's comprised of six song cycles and it actually uh, has a world premiere. We commissioned a living composer, a living, uh, a living Catalonian composer, Elisenda Fabregas, uh, who wrote just the very powerful uh, commission for us. And so we're excited that, that that's receiving its world premiere and that we continue to not only uh, celebrate uh, the history of Catalan art song, but to uh, move it forward as well with this new commission. Well, we've got about 90 seconds left. Uh, just quickly, where did you do the recordings at the university? We did it at the University of Delaware and it was engineered by Andreas Meyer and it's available now on all platforms, Spotify and iTunes and Amazon. Uh, and it's uh, out uh, available by Bridge Records and uh, distributed worldwide on Naxos. Which, I'm curious, which space at the university did you use? It was at the Center for the Arts at Gore Recital Hall. Uh, okay. Actually, um, Andreas Meyer just loves that space because it's a box within a box. So it's very insulated and you don't get any outside noise. It's just a wonderful space to record it. Great. And uh, just quickly, where can our listeners learn more about you? I understand you have your own website. Yes, they can visit me at jessmunoz.com. That's J-E-S-S-M-U-N-O-Z, jessmunoz.com. Well, Jess, I, this has been just really exciting for me. I, I love talking about music. I love talking about opera uh, and its relation to theater. This, uh, this has been really exciting. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. It's, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you for having me.